Well, again, I extend a warm welcome to you if you're visiting Westmount this morning. Uh, I pray and trust and know you've been warmly welcomed already. And I invite you, dear visitor, along with all of those gathered here today to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew 28. If you are indeed our guest this morning and don't have a Bible with you, just look in the rack in front of you. There's Bibles there for you. Please, by all means, take one, follow along. Turn to the New Testament, first book, Matthew, and we'll be in Matthew 28. Again, the last chapter of that book. Friends, let me ask you a question. Why are we gathering today? Why? Why are you here? Why is this assembly today, this gathering, this special morning, why is it so important that you came? Why? Why have there always been gatherings like this on this morning for 2,000 years? By the way, nothing has stopped that. Why? Why? Why assemblies every week like this? Why for two millennia, I ask you, why the effort? I ask you, why the risk? Why? Why? Why is gathering together under one name so essentially important? Why? Why is it important? Why do pastors in this province willingly accept unjust fines and court dates? Why? It makes no sense, right? It shouldn't. Why? Why? Why did Pastor James risk and submit to 35 days in jail this winter? Why? Why? Why did Martin Luther stand at the Diet of Worms 500 years ago, by the way, against the state? Why did he do that? Why? Why has the church in history gathered under the, the threat of persecution, gone through persecution? Why, when great plagues happen, why does the church still gather? Why? Why? Why did Paul and the apostles gather at risk of imprisonment, stone, sword, and death? Why? Westmount, church, saints, brothers and sisters, why are we here today? Why? Beloved, we're gathered here this morning because Christ rose again. That's why we're here. Because he rose again. He rose again. And beloved, we gather because Christ was died, Christ was buried, but the grave was not the end. As we sang so much today, so wonderfully, we gather as God's people have for century, listen to me, because of the empty tomb. That's why we gather, because of the resurrection. 1 Peter 1.3, listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, note that, to be born again to a living hope. And then this, how? The apostle goes on, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how. That's why. Romans 4.24 says that Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses. And listen to this, raised for our justification. That means, beloved, the resurrection of Jesus Christ validated something. It counted for something. That's what that means. 
This resurrection of Christ that is at the heart of every assembly of God's own called out ones. The resurrection of Christ confirmed our place, and here it is, our position in the Son of God. Amazing. The resurrection of Christ caused all those who believe in Christ to be justified in Christ. And to be justified in Christ means that our justification market is not in ourselves. That means simply our reason, our validation, our stand for being here today is not in anything that we think, say, or even do. That's right. Our justification, our validation here today is not of our own doing. Beloved, I... I think we all need to hear this. We gather not because we won't be bossed around or told what to do. That's not why we're gathering. Church, we gather not because we feel really good about this cause or even really good about someone 2,000 years ago. No, saints, we gather not even because of what we sincerely believe. Listen to me. Many people sincerely believe many things and do many things that are foolish. No, Westmount, our justification only stands on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He either rose or he didn't. And if he rose, here we are. And here we stand. His perfect life, his perfect work, that righteousness laid down, that lamb slain. And that perfect sacrifice is the only payment acceptable in the divine court. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hear it, we can never hear this enough. Because of the risen Christ, we are justified in God's sight. There it is. Because he rose. And friends, that justification is legal. But I think we need to tease something apart this morning in a very legal environment. It's not a justification in legal courts. Our justification before God has nothing to do with Caesar's courts. No, we're talking about the heavenly court. And it's the only court that matters in the fullness of time. This justification before God Almighty, justification that, praise God, makes us right with God. Westmount, that is why we are here this morning. Here at church, we are here not because of anything in us. We have nothing to give. We have no justification to offer. Not our work, our track record, our standard, our rights. We have nothing. No, the Bible makes this clear. Those actually count for nothing and they justify no one. And if that is why we gather today because of a cause or because of our efforts, if if that is why we're here today because we sincerely believed in ourselves and what we can do, then as the Apostle Paul says, and we need to hear this, if that is why, because of anything emanating out of us, then we are of all people most to be pitied. That is why the resurrection is everything for us. And it is how we can gather today. So what of the resurrection? It is foundational truth. But listen, some consider it a lie. I think you know this. It's foundational truth, but some consider it a lie. In fact, some consider the resurrection a big lie. Now, beloved, listen, that shouldn't surprise us, right? That shouldn't surprise us at all. The world is always offering up lies and cover-ups and deception. 
And this shouldn't shake us because like all lies, it cannot stand. Lies never endure. They feel like they do sometimes, don't they? But lies cannot endure. No, only one thing stands ultimately, and that is truth. And truth has implications. That is what we'll look at today. We're going to look at the truth, the lie, and the implication. So we look at the truth to begin. Many of you know that all four Gospels record the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. All four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record that. Christ's death, as you look down now at Matthew, is detailed in Matthew 27. It's very similar to the other gospel accounts. It has pieces unique to Matthew, but generally it's the same account of the crucifixion of Christ. And it is true, and note this, virtually no one contests that documented fact. Did you know that? Virtually no one contests that there was someone called Jesus who died and went into a tomb. Nobody contests that. No one. And you know, it reminds me that people have no problem affirming something that has no consequence to them, or so they think. If it has no consequence to me, sure, I'll affirm it. Someone tells me there's a little island they just discovered off Antarctica, and there's things there. I'm like, sure, I'll believe that. Whatever. Right? It has no consequence to me. Right? I'm more likely to believe it. And that's how it goes in humanity, Right? Similarly, affirming the death of Jesus Christ, well, sure, everyone can do that. Sure, Jesus, that great moral teacher, right? He died, sure. Sure, Jesus, wasn't he a freedom fighter? Yeah, I can get behind him. Yes, he died. That's really good. Sure, Jesus, that ancient rabbi, that peace promoter, that good fellow, yes, I'll affirm that he died. Sure, I can affirm that. And as many might say, I don't even need convincing on that. You don't need to reason with me. I believe it. Well, presented just as historically as that fact, and note this, just as historically truth as that's presented, so too is this. Look at Matthew 28. Read the first few verses. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there... They will see me. Friends, consider with me the following in light of that account. Let's just consider these verses. First of all, I want you to look at the manner of this resurrection. I think by its very nature, as you consider resurrection, we recognize it wouldn't be natural, right? The very nature of being risen from the grave, resurrection is not natural. And that is, of course, precisely what we see. First, look in verse 2. 
there's a great earthquake. Then an angel descends from heaven, rolling back a boulder. By the way, this would be no ordinary boulder in ancient times, in ancient tombs. This is like 10 men strong need to put that boulder in place. But the angel supernaturally puts it aside. This angel appears like lightning. Look at verse 3. Clothing white as snow. What a picture. I want you to consider those verses and consider them against our efforts to preserve our lives and raise ourselves. I want you to think about that this morning. All the efforts to preserve ourselves against this picture. And may I submit to you this supernatural account when we think about our efforts to save ourselves is the very least you'd expect, right? That's what, that's what it's going to take to raise the dead. So that's the first thing we want to just mention that. There's going to be victory over the inevitability of death. At the very least, we need to see this. So that's one. Two, look at the response to the resurrection. Verse four, the guards were afraid and trembled. I like the irony here, like dead men. They're guarding the tomb of a dead man, and they're the ones trembling like the dead men, but the living is out of the tomb. Amazing. No surprises here. This is the response that you would expect to the miraculous. This is confirming. And look at verse 5. The women are actually afraid too. And yet, did you notice? The angel has absolutely nothing to say to the guards. Do you see that? Like Just bypass the guards. Nothing to say to them. Nothing to say to the enemy. Only to the faithful. Only to the faithful. The faithful women coming to see the tomb of their Messiah. Only them. And to them... The faithful, believing, true ones. He says, look at verse 5. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Yes, Jesus was crucified. Yes, he was here. But now he is not here. Why? How? Well, that brings us to another consideration in this account. Thirdly, we'd say the fulfillment that is the resurrection. This is fulfillment. Look carefully at verse 6. For he has risen, look at it, as he said. Do you see that? As he said. In other words, women, you're witnessing nothing that wasn't already told to you. If we could say it more simply, we would just say, women, what did you expect? What did you come here thinking that you would see? Look at Matthew 16. Let's just do a quick little survey. We need to see this too and be reminded, especially when people have words for us today and models and graphs and predictions. We need to see true predictions, true foretelling words. Matthew 16, look at verse 21. This is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. This is after Peter confesses that he is indeed the Christ. So Jesus says, that time Jesus began to show his disciples, he must go to Jerusalem. And look at this. Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Look at that. On the third day be raised. Everyone is fine with all of those things until the very last one. He said, yes, he's going to go die a martyr's death. Yes, it's going to be horrific even. Yes, he's willingly going. But look what he says. Don't miss it. On the third day be raised. That's not all. Look at chapter 17. It doesn't stop there. Verse 22. He does it again. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. We could say, okay, yes, there it is again, but then this, and he will be raised on the third day. 
And they were greatly distressed. It doesn't end there either. Look at chapter 20. This is not a one-time prediction that he said. Chapter 20, verse 17. A third time as Jesus, verse 17, was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And here it is again. And he will be raised on the third day. One more, chapter 26, in case we're missing it. Chapter 26, verse 31. This is just before the cross. This is the night before. Jesus says to them this, verse 31, chapter 26. You will all fall away because of me this night. I mean, you talk about accurate predictions, and that they do. For it is written. He goes into the Old Testament for this. Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But then listen to this. He goes to ancient prophecy. He repeats prophecy. He said over and over again, but he says this, verse 32, but after I am raised up, and almost it should be to them, matter of fact, he says this, here's the detail, I will go before you to Galilee. In other words, you should get this by now. I will be raised up. I will be raised up. We could confirm with many other references in the Gospels or even the Old Testament, I think of Psalm 16, Psalm 110. But the point is not an abundance of proof texts, but instead the point is the fact that Jesus' resurrection was foretold and here it is and is now fulfilled. That's the point. It's now fulfilled. What we need to see here is this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ for these ancient people should have surprised no one. Yet here it is. This gets really practical for us in this account. No matter how much we're given truth ahead of time, we always wrestle with it becoming reality. Is that not true? In fact, the tougher the truth we're given ahead of time, it seems like the harder it is for us to receive it. You might say, well, we knew this was coming, but it was still hard. Happens all the time. And before we move on, we just need to marvel at how, again, precise this is. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to where? Galilee. Amazing. And there they will see me. That's precisely what he said would happen. Not only would he be raised, as he said, but he said, you will gather in Galilee to meet him, or to meet me, Jesus said, just as he said. Church, that is the truth of Christ's resurrection, presented just as plainly as Christ's death. Yet that resurrection truth is not received as plainly as Christ's crucifixion truth. Do you see that? Again, people have no problem with the crucifixion, but a big problem with the resurrection. Why? Well, as you wrestle with that question, maybe in your own heart, your own spheres, consider what many do instead of receiving the truth of the resurrection. What do they do? Let's look now at the more common reception to the truth of the resurrection. And it's right here in this account. And we'll see again, there's nothing new today. We've looked at the truth, now we look at the lie. The lie. Look at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. They stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him. And keep you out of trouble. Wow. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. 
Get that. This story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I want you to see this. The story versus the account. The story versus the account. The lie versus the truth. Beloved, consider the lessons here. The replete. The lessons of lies versus truth in these verses. Number one, mark this. Lies are always rooted in fear. Lies are always rooted in fear. And fear is all over this account. Notice the fear of the guards, verse 11. They don't go to their direct reports. No, they go to the chief priests. I mean, they're Roman. And they're going to the Jews because they're afraid. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that? Going to your superior and say, well, we botched up. I I don't even have an explanation for you. No, they're afraid. In fact, very likely, history tells us they would have lost their lives if they came back with that report. So they're afraid. Two, notice the fear of the chief priests. Verse 13, they have to make up a story. They resolve for a fabrication. Notice the fear of many sins. This is incredible. Tells you how quickly lies can spread. Verse 15, this story, this lie spread to this day. That would be roughly 30 years from when this gospel account would have been penned to when it actually happened. That's three decades of propagation. That is fear spread in the face of plain truth. And note this, especially in that first century. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, did you know, is one of the most documented and attested historical facts. It is. The New Testament goes on to talk about witness upon witness upon witness. An explosion of witnesses that testify to the risen Christ. However, that has not stopped countless denying it. Again, death, sure. Resurrection, well, don't know. I just don't know. Listen, just because a truth arouses fear is no logical reason to deny it. Just because a truth arouses fear and many truths arouse fear, it's no reason to deny it. Yet this is what we do. Truth denying is in our nature. The child denies he did anything, even in the face of truth. Why? The criminal denies all wrongdoing, even in the face of evidence. Why? The authorities deny the overreach, the injustice, even when two weeks become 12 months, even when the truth is abundantly clear with each passing order. Why? Because of fear. Fear always, mark it, fear always produces lies every time you let fear sit you don't subordinate it to jesus christ and it will become a lie every time every time still true today two so lies are always rooted in fear two lies and mark this the big and effective lies always need resources right Big lies need money. That's what we're saying. Big lies need money. And to prove that, look at verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave not just a sum of money, look at this, a sufficient sum of money, in other words, scads of money, to the soldiers. Incredible. Lots of money. And it's money that fuels this. Look at verse 15. So they took the money, so the money is the engine, and they did as they were directed. And the story has been spread to the Jews to this day. Amazing. Money fuels the lie. Beloved, every good lie in history, every big lie in history has had money behind it. And of course, it's still true today. That is why you cannot and you should not believe things because of their size. Don't do that. 
Just because there's lots of money spent on lots of big splashy billboards telling you how dangerous it is to gather with other people doesn't make that true. I don't care how big the billboard is. It's a lie. It's actually really good and God decreed to be with people. Just because $16 million, can you believe that? $16 million is spent on an app to track where people go and only a few million take it up doesn't make it true. That's a lot of money spent on something nobody wants. But it doesn't make the lie true. Friends, the bigger the lie, the bigger the resources needed to float it. And you ask this, well, if it's a lie, how can it possibly last so long? Truth is truth, right? Truth will set you free. Didn't Christ say that? Doesn't truth win out in the end? Well, yes, it does, beloved. Yes, it does. Praise the Lord, it does. But that is in the end. And listen to me, we're not there yet. Contrary to what you keep hearing, how we're almost there. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Until then, we will live with lies. I don't want to be a downer this morning. I want to be a realist to tell you we will live with lies. Until he comes again, we will live with lies. John Broadus said this, a lie will be long-lived if it suits men's prejudices. Is that not true? As long as it's convenient, as long as deception gets you from A to B, the lie will live. Yes, lies get many people to many places today, but that shouldn't stress us. And I want to really press this point to you, regardless of why or how you ended up here this morning. It shouldn't stress you that lies propagate. And I want you, as Jerry's reminded us already, I want you to consider Exhibit A. And yes, you can look around one more time. You are here. And why are you here? Because they couldn't suppress the truth with a lie. Truth always wins in the end. You cannot stop the truth. Praise God. You cannot stop the truth. And I ask you this, and you take it away with you. Did this truth suppression in the first century work? And if it didn't work then, let me ask you something. Does truth suppression work today? No. Don't fret, beloved. Don't fret. Truth wins every time. Every time. The lie, here it is. The lie only proved the truth of the resurrection. Then and now. Yes, the lie in the economy of God was used to ignite the truth. Did you see that? As it is today. Maybe you're sitting here saying, I never thought I'd be here this morning. Because the lies only fuel the truth under the sovereignty of God. Reminds me of the truth of Genesis 50-20. Joseph, to his evil lying brothers... Remember what they said to their father about Joseph's fate, all with a robe of blood? And Joseph stands there under the sovereignty of God and says, You meant evil against me, but God meant what? It for good. That's what God does with lies. And mark that, God, in fact, has no fear of recording that lie right here in God's word. He has no fear of doing that. That's because lies cannot stand against truth. They fall every time, and eventually lies will fall. In fact, under our sovereign God, efforts against the truth, in other words, every lie told against the truth, only serve as jet propulsion to the truth. Every time. Again, I just ask you to think of this past year and this past week and what you see around you. It's been a blessing to talk to some of you this week. 
There's a lot of people of the truth in this room. We appreciate that. In light of all the announcements, some of you have said, and many say, we can't take the lies anymore. We just can't take it. Beloved, it's true. You cannot stop the truth. On any level, on an earthly level, in the heavenly realm. Oh, church, we can fret, right? I'm with you. We can fret sometimes when lies seem to win the day. But this text is here to remind you, with a lie preserved in God's word, that the truth always wins in the end. Listen, God is at work in 2021. He ordained this. And hear me. Just because we live with lies does not mean we live by them. I want to say that again. Just because we live with lies doesn't mean you live by them. Don't live the lie. Live the truth. One more point and one more portion here that deserves our attention. The implication. This has implications, right? It has implications. Friends, as people that love truth, we need an important caution here. And it's this. Truth has implications. It always does. We are not just truth bounty hunters. I hope not. Delivering truth like some trophy. Uncovering it and putting it on a shelf. No. Truth by its very nature has implications. And that's no different here. Resurrection truth then has implications. If the resurrection is true, and it is, as we've seen, then there's an implication. Because Jesus rose from the grave, what? We have a special week in church, a holiday weekend. Is that the implication? He conquered the grave so you could get an extra day off. Well, we have a beautiful New Testament account. Is that why he rose? Is that the implication? Is it just another earthquake with angels and a really big boulder move? Is that why? Is that the implication? We have a nice doctrine to analyze and we write lots of papers on the historical reality of the resurrection. What is the implication of the resurrection? Well, to answer that question, we take a step back for a moment and consider the death that came before the resurrection. 1 John 4, 10 says this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and what? Sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It was no ordinary death. Even those that want to just dismiss and say, yes, He died, need to reckon with the fact that that's not an ordinary death. Propitiation is a big word really to just say appeasing. And what was being appeased in that death? The very wrath of God do the sinner for his falling short of the divine standard that's true of every single human being of all time. And here is where the resurrection comes to bear. That is frighteningly bad news for us. Because that divine standard says... You must be perfect to enter heaven. There is no big scale in heaven. Your righteousness, no matter how righteous you are, will not get you to heaven. God says, be perfect, Matthew 5. And you say to me, that's impossible. And I say to you, you're absolutely right. And you say to me, well, how can anyone get to heaven? And I gloriously say to you this. Romans 1 4. 
Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He descended, it goes on to say, from the flesh. From David he became man. Fully man, fully God. And in that death, he took on the sin of those that would repent and turn to him. He took it on. That perfect one took it on himself in that death. And in that death, God looked at his son. He gave his son, who took on the sins of those that were his, and looked at his perfect righteousness and said, It is enough. My wrath is appeased. And for these ones, for these ones, covered by the righteous blood of the Lamb, they truly will be safe. I love what Jerry said this morning. All else is danger. I mean, you want danger today? It's not a virus. It's the wrath of God. And it is hanging over humanity. Unless, and here's the good news. The good news. For those that repent and turn and forsake their way. And say, you know... I now know because God has sovereignly done something in my heart that nothing I can do will earn my way to God. And I need Christ. I need His perfect righteousness. I need to be in Him. And that way is the only way that I will get to heaven. For those that say that and confess that and believe it in their heart, beloved, then you are truly safe. And not just here. Not just for a few more days. Forever in eternity. Is that not good news? And does that not deserve to be proclaimed and heralded? Well, beloved, look, that's exactly what happens next. God is so good. Look at verse 16. That, of course, is good news, and it demands to be spread. The free offer of salvation to those that would repent and trust Christ. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amazing gospel truth that deserves to be spread. And that's exactly what we see. Three things. Three things here in this final section. One, because of the resurrection, look at it, because of the resurrection, Christ gives a command. Look at verse 19. And the command is this, go and make disciples of all nations. This is amazing. This can only be because of the resurrection. Do you realize it's not only the great commission, but it is the commission. Do you see that? It is great. Of course it's great. It's good news. It's, that's what it is. But it's the only commission. I would submit to you that this commission has fallen into great neglect today. And no, I don't mean a scarcity of missionaries, although there is that. I mean the commission right here at home. Kawartha, Peterborough, Ontario, whatever you want to call it. Today, we hear far too much about what I'm going to call this, the passive witness. Have you heard of it? The passive witness. It goes something like this. Well, I'm concerned about my witness before Christ. 
So I'm going to stay home and I'm going to stay safe and I'm going to be a witness for Jesus in my bedroom. In other words, listen, stay home like everyone else in Canaan and that's going to show them. Only in today's, I say this respectfully, only in today's backwards world can that be presented with any kind of ilk of the Great Commission. That, that flies in the very face of what you just read, does it not? I challenge you, beloved, I challenge you to find a text that commands that kind of passivity. I challenge you to open the scriptures and find a passive commission. No, not only does go mean go, go means in verse 19, leave your home and go and move in proximity to others. It means go, verse 19, means disciples will be made. And here it is, feel the weight. Disciples will be made because you go. Because you go. This is active. This implication of the resurrection is movement. It is message. It is made disciples. Two, because of the resurrection, a new life is lived. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I mean, this is amazing. The word for disciple there, look at it, means learner. That's what that means. By the way, everyone is learning from someone. Everyone is following someone or something. And here, the subject of this great commission, the subject of the disciples of their learning is what? Look at it. All that Christ commands. Do you see that? A disciple, then, is not someone in word only. Oh, yes, I follow Jesus. Or even in deed. No, those are cheap. Those are cheap. A disciple is one that observes all that Christ commands. Yes, even the hard stuff. Doesn't skip any verses. Doesn't contextualize the Bible to their life. A a disciple of Jesus Christ follows all of it and says, I submit my entire life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. A disciple, and here it is, is one you need not wonder who they're following. A true disciple, like neon lights emanating from everything they do, says, wow, they're following Christ. That's because, beloved, the resurrection has implications. It gives new life. Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too, might walk in newness of life. The resurrection is the reason that true, genuine believers, those in Christ are here, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, new creations. I'm not the only one that would say, praise God, the old has passed away and the new has come because of the resurrection. The implication of the resurrection is this, beloved, complete life change. Three, because of the resurrection, we must recognize our true authority. Verse 18. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to the local health unit. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to the provincial government. No, no. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to the federal government. No, 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 no. It's the World Health Organization. All authority in heaven on earth. No, beloved, what does it say? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, Jesus Christ. 
Anyone that quibbles with who is really in charge needs to reckon with this verse. The sad reality, we think about the local health unit, provincial government, is that many, I'm not even talking about the world, many in the church function as if that is true. It's sad. Friends, we must pause and consider again what it says. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Christ. Christ. Jesus Christ. One cosmic implication here, and then a personal one. First, the cosmic, the implication really from the resurrection. I don't know where your soul is this morning, but no matter where, listen, you need to reckon this morning with the true authority over your life. Get rid of the news feeds. Get rid of the clutter. Get rid of the noise. And nestle with the Word of God. And reckon with who the true authority is over your life. That's what you need to do right now. You might claim Christ this morning. You might claim that He has saved you. But He's not your Lord. Look again. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Look at your life. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Hear me. He is not your Savior if He's not your Lord. He's not your Savior if He's not your Lord. The Bible can't be clear. Two, you might be seeking Christ this morning. Maybe you just keep asking questions about Him. Maybe that's what got you here this morning. You just have a lot of questions. Like, I got a ton of questions. What can I respectfully say to you? You you might have it a little wrong. It's the question, which is one, that He asks of you. And He said it to His disciples. When they confessed Him, He said, okay, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I don't care what everyone else says. Who do you say that I am? In other words, who is the Lord of your life? If someone looks at your life, they would say, well, this clearly is the Lord of their life. Who do you say that he is? There's no fence sitting with Jesus. Silence, waiting, questions or uncertainty is a response. And it's not a good one. The resurrection presents you with all you need to turn and believe on Him. He is the only one. And have we not seen it? He is the only one with power over the grave. And the command is to come to Him, not isolate yourself and go your way. He is not an option. Jesus Christ is not an option. And He's infinitely more certain than a vaccine. He is Christ victorious. He doesn't just give you a few more days of this life. It astounds me the lengths we go to to lengthen our days. And one day we're going to look back in one of two destinations and say, what in the world was I doing? Fretting about a few more days. Staying safe. Whatever it is we do may prolong this life, but it will not grant you eternal life. No, Christ Jesus the Lord is the one that grants eternal life with God forever. Maybe you're here and you're resisting Christ. Maybe you just don't want to believe, right? You, were, you went to some university, you were taught a lot of things, you're really rational, and, and you just don't want to believe. Well, if that's you, know this, you will be resurrected. You say, well, that, wow, really? You, you will be. You will endure a resurrection. You will. That much is true. However, 
It will not be to the place that you expect. All of us, the Bible says, will be resurrected. In fact, Jesus himself told us this, John 5, 29. He said some will be resurrected to life, some will be resurrected to judgment. And who decides that? Well, a couple verses before that, we're told exactly who. Verse 27, and God has given the Son of God, that would be Christ, the Son of God, authority to execute judgment. That's no different to what we see at the end of our passage here today. Matthew 28, 18, again, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to Jesus Christ. That's cosmic, universal, all of creation authority. This is authority over heaven, of course, and also hell. Hell. The resurrected Jesus said in Revelation 1.18, I am the living one, which makes sense with the resurrected Christ. Then he said this, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And here's the implication. Jesus continues, and I have the keys of death and Hades, death and hell. Jesus holds them for every soul. He holds the keys to your resurrection. That's right. The final authority over our final destination between heaven and hell is Christ and Christ alone. His to grant. And this is where it becomes personal. The implications are not just cosmic, they're personal. This is for you. The destination you are headed is not a matter of of whose authority you recognize in one sense, because ultimately we will all see Christ for the authority he is one day, Philippians 2. So it's not a matter of recognizing the true authority, right? In one sense, one day we all will. No. The issue is when you recognize that authority. When do you bow the knee to the one true authority over the universe? Now in this life while you still have breath or after you die in the life to come and when you stand before him in judgment and believe me, it is too late. On that day, where will it be revealed that you placed your trust for your eternal destiny? Are you going to stand before God Almighty with a lie in hand, a lie of your own works to say, God Almighty, I hope this is enough. It's a lie. There's nothing anyone can do to earn their way to God. You can't make enough meals. You can't serve enough. You can't say enough uh, rote prayers. You can't attend enough functions. You can't do all of these things. You can't. Because the standard is perfection, remember. On that day, where will your trust be for eternal salvation? Because your empty works are imperfect and insufficient to save. Or, will you put your trust in the only way of salvation? Christ alone and His righteousness. In Christ, mark it, in Christ is the only way to be saved. And that means you turn from trusting yourself. You're done with that. You repent and you turn from yourself. You forsake your way and you believe on Jesus Christ, the perfect truth. Don't believe the lie that you're going to be okay. That lie only proves the truth. And I want you to think about that as we close. It is a lie to think 
that we can offer anything to God that's worthy of perfection in the Almighty. That lie only proves the truth, that he is perfect and the only way to heaven is through perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't believe the lie. You may have a few more days through this pandemic, but you will die. You will die. And on that day, who is your trust in? Yourself or in Jesus Christ? Christ is the only authority in this life and your only hope for the life to come. And I'm calling on you, I'm calling on you to believe in the truth that conquers all lies. And it is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Father in heaven, God, we come before you with that confession. That is our heart's cry, that you are Lord and you are God alone. God, forgive us, have mercy on us for our doubting, our resisting, sometimes our out-and-out rebellion. God, I pray for those maybe never heard this offer and this news. Lord, if they're yours, that you would save them today. And for those of us, Lord, that know this, but are not living this truth, living under this authority, Lord, help us to repent, be renewed, and cling to the righteousness in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.